Our second reading, a briefer reading now from the New Testament, from the first letter of the Apostle Peter, first chapter. And uh, we'll read from verse 8, and we'll read to the end of verse 12. Overlapping with where we've been the last two Sunday evenings. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, page 1219. 1219. Though you have not seen the Lord Jesus Christ, says Peter, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ, of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Brothers and sisters and friends, what is the greatest attraction, the greatest draw, the greatest spectacle, the greatest show in town, the greatest show in the whole wide universe of time and space. It's us. It's you and me here right now. It's God's amazing grace and salvation worked out through Jesus Christ in his people. That's it. Supposing we were to put together a list of the five most sought-after attractions in this great city of London, what might they be? In today's internet age, that's an easy question to answer. You can Google search London's five top attractions and you can see that certain things come out on top. Where do people want to go? They want to go to the Tower of London. They want to see Buckingham Palace. They want to go on the London Eye. They want to go round the British Museum, especially if Dave Arthur's doing a tour. They want to go to Tate Modern, apparently, <laughs> okay, and see all of these things. If you're coming to London, you need to see these things. They exert a kind of gravitational pull. There's a kind of force field that draws people to see those particular attractions and others that I haven't mentioned. But there is a greater attraction than all of these put together. Because what the Apostle Peter is describing in these verses is the great cosmic 
universe-wide force field, the gravitational pull, the glorious shining light of God's salvation that he has worked out and is working out in his people through Jesus Christ. And in this short passage from verses 10 to 12, the Apostle Peter tells us that the ancient prophets were moved long, long before Christ to look and peer and inquire deeply into this great thing, this great work of God, that he is saving sinners by grace through his Son, Jesus Christ. And Peter also tells us, as the Spirit of God fills him and moves him and speaks through him, that the very angels in heaven find nothing, nothing more fascinating and engrossing and mind-blowing than this salvation of God's grace to save sinners through Jesus Christ. And so my title tonight is something along these lines. Line up prophets, line up angels, roll up, roll up, you prophets over there, you angels over there, stand in line, this is the greatest show in town. So let's tonight begin by, if we can, entering the mind of the prophets, and if we can then do even this, enter the minds of the angels, and then finally come to our own minds on this great subject. Let's begin with the prophets. The prophets' inquiry. Verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, says Peter, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Well, first of all, who are these prophets? They are the prophets of the Old Testament. And when we think prophets of the Old Testament, we probably think of a few obvious and conspicuous names. Probably among them foremost we would say, well of course Isaiah, he is, is he not? The, the great writing prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah, whose 53rd chapter we read, who saw particularly the sufferings and the glory of Christ. We think of Isaiah, we think of Jeremiah, we think of Ezekiel, we think maybe of Daniel, we think of the minor prophets who follow, but there's more to it than that. There were the prophets who never wrote down a word, as far as we understand. We think of the great prophet Elijah and his successor Elisha and many other prophets. But even that is not nearly enough. The New Testament and the whole Bible indeed tells us that Moses and David and Samuel and a host of others were all prophets of God. God spoke to them, God spoke through them, to us. We can even go right back to the beginning and say that Abel and Enoch and Noah 
and Abraham were all clearly prophets. Indeed, Adam himself, to whom that revelation came in the garden that the seed of his wife would crush the head of the serpent, was, by this reckoning, a prophet. We can say, in fact, this. The whole Old Testament is prophecy. It says in Revelation something else. The spirit of Jesus, sorry, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Because what were all these prophets doing from Adam and Abel to Zechariah? What were they all doing? The spirit of Christ in them, says Peter, moved them, motivated them, stirred them, launched them on a great quest. They were taken up with a great question. Who is this figure? Who is this man? Who is this person that all our prophecies that God has given us is pointing to? What is this Passover all about, thinks Moses? Who is the great prophet that is to come long after me? Who is the sacrificial lamb? Who is the prophet greater than Moses and Elijah? Who is the true son and heir of David? Who is the righteous branch in the prophecy of Isaiah and of Jeremiah? Who is the suffering servant? You see, the prophets were caught up in this quest. They lived long before Christ, but their spiritual minds and eyes were fixed on seeing who this figure was. And that's why Jesus himself spoke and said things in John's Gospel like the following. You remember he said to the crowds who were there with him something amazing about Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What does that mean? It means that 2,000 years before Jesus, the very spirit of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ was in Abraham enabling him to look up to the sky and see his own eventual son and heir among those stars. And he rejoiced to think that Christ would come. And then Jesus also said this, didn't he, to the same group of people a little earlier on, if you believed Moses as you say you do, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. He wrote about me as the greater prophet who would come. That spirit of Christ was in the prophets as they especially saw, as Isaiah did, the glory of Christ that followed his sufferings. I like to think of these prophets as laying the road to Emmaus before anybody walked on it. You know how those two disciples on Easter morning were walking the road to Emmaus, weren't they? And Jesus joins them. Unbeknown to them, this is Jesus who is with them. And he takes these two disciples on the most amazing journey, the most wonderful Bible study that's ever been conducted, so that they're saying to each other at the end, were not our hearts burning within us as he spoke to us as we walked on that road. Because Jesus, we, we read, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see, all the longings and desires and visions and, as it were, seen but not quite snatched desires of the prophets were all fulfilled in Jesus. And he explained this as he walked that road to Emmaus with them. All the prophets were seized and driven by this desire to know who Jesus Christ was and what he would do. That's the first thing we see. And then secondly, we see the angel's longing. And we jump to the end of the passage and to the few brief words at the end of verse 12. Things into which angels long to look. You might say, why am I jumping to the end straight away? Well, it will become clear, hopefully, in a few minutes' time. But what are these angels looking at? Well, they are looking again at Jesus Christ. They're looking at God's salvation. And they're looking at this amazing grace. They are looking at how the suffering Son of God, crucified and risen, saves sinners like us. This is an astonishing thing. Your salvation, dear brother or sister, and my salvation is the fascinated preoccupation of angels in heaven. And here in verse 12, Peter uses two verbs. The second of them, the verb at the end of verse 12, is the verb to look. And that word look could be stronger. It means to, to peer into something, maybe to stoop down and examine something, to put it under the microscope, to minutely explore it. It's the verb used that describes Peter himself peering into the tomb, which is empty on resurrection morning. That's what the angels are doing. They're, they're taking a very close look. And then the verb that comes before, things into which angels long to look. And that verb, long, has the sense of strong desire. In some contexts, the verb to lust is used to translate that word. Well, it's not lust here, but it is an all-consuming desire. And this, this I suggest, is fascinating. <laughs> what would you want to do if you were an angel? What would... <laughs> What would seize your own interest? What would you like to explore? Where would you like to go? Some of you know I'm a bit of an amateur astronomer. And uh, I've noticed in the last few days, to my great alarm and dismay, uh, that the red giant star Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse in, the, in Orion is fading alarmingly. It's dimming down. No one knows why. It used to be so bright, and it's now it's shrinking away. And, uh, well, why might that be? Well, I think if I were an angel, I'd want to go and look at that star and uh, measure it and go on a little tour around it and see what's going on there. I mean, don't angels have amazing privileges? Can't they engage in intergalactic travel? And aren't they there in a realm that we can't see? Don't angels even see the very face of God? I mean, angels have amazing privileges that are not given to us, don't they? 
If you were an angel, what would you want to do? Something out of this world, wouldn't you, I think, if we can imagine that. But that's not what we read. That's not what we read. Angels are peering down from heaven on this gathering. They're looking into your soul and mine. And if angels have eyes and mouths, their eyes are wide open and their mouths are agape with wonder and awe at what is going on. The gracious salvation of God that he's working out in people like you and people like me. Ask any holy angel, what is the greatest show on earth? What is the greatest show in the universe? Is it some display of of the northern lights or shooting stars or some exploding supernova or galaxy? No, it's not. It's what Paul describes in Ephesians 3 verse 10 as the manifold wisdom of God being made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Angels can't be done with red giant stars and white dwarf stars and exploding supernovas. No, they'd rather come to Jericho and look at the life of a man called Zacchaeus and say, have you seen what God has done? Have you seen what his son has done in that man's life? Zacchaeus, greedy, criminal, grasping, swindling chief tax collector. Look at what our holy, gracious God has affected in that man's life. He's new, he's changed, he's different. Come over here, come here, angels. Look at that man on that cross. Ten minutes ago he was, he was shouting foul blasphemies at the Son of God and now he's worshipping him. He's changed, he's been saved, he's different. Come over here, look at this man. Look at this man, John Newton. He used to be a foul-mouthed slave trader, a greedy man, a proud man. Look at him now. He's composing hymns. He's preaching sermons. He's loving the Lord his God. He's changed. See what grace God has shown in his life. And there are testimonies all over the world, millions of them, where the angels say, look at him, look at her. Look at Ruth the Moabitess. Did you just hear her words? She was worshipping the gods of Moab not long before. And now she's pledging her all to the God of Israel. Look at the church of Jesus Christ. Look at souls who were once indifferent, bored, switched off, uninterested in the gospel. Look at people who came along to the International Cafe. This has happened does happen, will happen. They come along, they only want to practice their English, nothing wrong with that, but they come and they have no interest in God, but they come and they hear something and they they talk to someone and they receive information and God speaks to them and the angel sees a man or a woman's heart being changed by the word of God, by the gospel of God, getting inside that person's heart and transforming them. And the angels say, we can, we can swap the whole universe of glory for the sight of a sinner who is being saved by the grace of God. Prophets and angels love these things. No wonder. 
But let's see what we have here for you and me tonight, friends. Because Peter calls this, in verse 10, the grace that was to be yours. The grace that was to be yours. Verse 12. And notice the emphasis on the word you in this verse. It was revealed to them, that is the prophets in this case, that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preached the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And who is the you? Well, we do our exegesis, we do our Bible homework, and we say, well, you refers back to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Verse 1. That's them, isn't it? It's them. Back then. Other people. Somewhere else, long ago, different time, different culture. Them. Those were the you then, not us. But I ask you the question. What's the difference between the people reading this letter back then and people here tonight reading the letter today? And the real answer is nothing. Nothing. Nothing at all. Same gospel. Same God. Same saviour. Same grace. Same salvation. Same Jesus. Same kinds of sinners, same love of God, same Holy Spirit, same power of God, same prophets looked on in the past, as are described here, same angels. The angels are the same. Angels are immortal. They haven't died. The angels then and the angels now are the same angels. They're looking at you. They were looking at them. There is no privilege that was enjoyed by these first readers of the letters, that is not also enjoyed by any believing reader and hearer of these words here tonight. And what Peter says here is only echoing what his master and saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, had said himself in his lifetime. Do you remember how, after the parable of the sower, and the disciples were gathered around Jesus and they'd heard this parable and they, they wanted to know what it was all about and they, they didn't understand. And Jesus explained it to them. And then Jesus said this to them. Hear these words. Matthew 13, verse 16 and 17. He said to them, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear, for truly I say to you, and I say again tonight, you and the you then are the same people. Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. But you have 
Peter, James, John and the rest, you have seen and you have heard. And what if you say to me here tonight at Grove Chapel, oh yes, that was them. They saw Jesus with their eyes. They were different. We're not like that, are we? We're lower class. We're second class. No, says Peter. For though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And are filled with a joy which is inexpressible and filled with glory, receiving the end of your salvation, uh, the end of your faith, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's us. It's us. It's you and me tonight. The Apostle Paul says the same thing. Romans 15 verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11, he talks about the experiences of the children of Israel going through the wilderness. And the rock they drank from was Christ and all of these things. And then he says, now these things happened to them. Back in the wilderness, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And that hour includes us here tonight. On whom the end of the ages has come. Now what conclusion can we come to? And I want you all to hear what I'm about to say. No group of human beings living at any time in history living in any nation on earth enjoying any benefits arising from education or wealth or technology or opportunity no group of human beings living in this world could ever be happier more blessed more privileged and in a godly sense more envied than you and me believers in God through Jesus Christ. The prophets of millennia ago look forward to the age that we are in and their spiritual mouths are watering with longing. The angels in glory, who have never ever known a fallen world like this, they look at you and me with our testimonies, with our sins, with our struggles, with our crosses, with our trials, with our burdens, with our failures. And they say, oh, how the grace of God amazes us. But our God, who we know is so righteous and so holy and so perfect, is at the same time so gracious as to stoop down and to deal with these people in Camberwell in such an amazing way. Has it, has it reached your heart? Has it got into your soul? Has it got into my soul yet, as it needs to, that we are so dearly, deeply, graciously, mercifully loved by God? Born again to a living hope.
because Jesus died for me and for you and rose again for our justification. And let me apply this as I now close. You and I might not feel today and tomorrow as though any of this makes any real difference to us. We can be unmoved by this. We may not look to one another and to those outside us as if we are such happy and privileged people. And that's the very reason that the Holy Spirit moved Peter to write this letter. Elect exiles. Exiles. Exiles who are not yet in their final home. People who have to suffer, who are called to suffer for a little while, if needs be, are grieved by trials. And the trials get us down and discourage us. And we become weary and sad and depressed. And we don't look very bright. We don't look very happy. We go through this world as if there's no difference between us and anybody else really at all. We are exiles. But we're elect exiles. We're loved with everlasting love. We're led by God's grace, that love to know. We've received a testimony from the God of heaven, the Spirit of supernatural power has brought the gospel of life into our hearts with reality, with effect, with power, so that we are heirs to an inheritance that is real, that will never perish or spoil or fade, that's kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being kept for that day. Oh, may the Lord God Take every word that is here. May we see ourselves as the prophets see us. May we see ourselves as the angels see us. Even better, may we see ourselves as our Heavenly Father sees us. How does he see you? How does he see me? He doesn't see the pitifully, repeatedly failing, useless, altogether worthless, unprofitable sinner that I know I am and that you know you are. If he dealt with us with just justice, just mere justice, strict justice, that's all he'd see. But he's chosen not to do that. And this is what makes angels gape. How does this God stoop down to pardon and to forgive and to raise up such guilty, vile worms as these? Who are we? Who are these sinners? They're nothing. They should be nothing, but somehow God loves them. And God shows his love in that while we are still such sinners, he sent his son to die for us. That's the gospel of grace. That's the gospel which, when we understand it, brings this joy.
to the hearts of God's people. May it do so again and again. May it fill us to overflowing. May Christ fill our hearts to overflowing. Let's pray together.